On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Richard Cross about all sorts of narratives related to SCOTUS. So we cover topics like university, voluntarism, nominalism, and why there's a general narrative between SCOTUS, Aquinas, and potentially the Reformed reception of them. We talk about what areas of theology and metaphysics are shared by the Reformers and the medieval scholastics, where they diverge, and much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and I'm alongside my friend, Joel Chop, who as a postdoctoral researcher, I think, is the official title at Wheaton College. And we are a podcast that's devoted to serious thinking uh, for a serious church. And one way we've tried to encourage serious thinking is by talking about and encouraging uh, a sort of intellectual culture of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So that means both being judicious with our arguments, talking to the experts about everything that we can possibly understand, and hearing directly from them rather than from secondhand sources, as well as being honoring to others and their own thoughts and opinions so we don't want to just blanket statement say everybody's dumb uh, you should all be x y or z let's just hear from them directly now today this is going to be a real treat we have dr richard cross back on the podcast uh, dr cross has done we've talked about christology and metaphysics in the past so if you haven't listened to those you definitely need to go do that he's got some books on that as well and i think um, the most recent one or at least the, the christology and metaphysics one i think is now out in paperback so it's like half the cost, I think, if I remember correctly. Um, if it's not, then I'm speaking too soon, and you can just go buy the, the hardcover either way uh, because it's that good. Editor's note, it was indeed only in hardback, but you should still get it. So I am thrilled to talk about this particular topic today, um, in part because it seems like it's made sort of an inroads in the Reformed-ish and evangelical communities, and that's things of just SCOTUS being sort of like this great villain. Uh, he's he's like a virus of some sort where he's inserting univocity and voluntarism and nominalism and all these bad, whatever these bad things are, these boogeyman into our theology. So I thought, who better to talk to than Dr. Richard Cross to understand what's going on with all of this with related to SCOTUS and things. So I think some of you guys who listen probably are well aware of the, the SCOTUS story. Uh, it's a little bit dated now, but it seems to be making a uh, sort of like a, I don't know what, it's coming back for uh, for a second act, and some of you who are not. So maybe you're just not into medieval theology. Maybe you're a uh, uh, novice in this area, and this is just going to be interesting for you. Either way, this is going to be a lot of fun. So, Dr. Cross, before we get started, maybe could you just give me a little bit of background on what was it that drew you to thinking about SCOTUS in the first place? I mean, I, I got to imagine there's a lot of figures out there that you could have studied. Why did you decide you want to focus on SCOTUS for a large portion of your research at, at the initial stage of your career? Well, actually, it was just a result of reading some. I was an undergraduate student doing a course in scholastic theology, and it was a series of set texts on questions to do with justification and grace. It's a theology course. Um, and... Uh, one of the set texts was Scotus's 17th quadlibital question, and the issue which is raised is this. Are acts of natural and supernatural love specifically the same or not? 
And the answer, which is interesting from all sorts of points of view, is that yes, they are specifically the same because all the act of supernatural love adds to the act of natural love as a matter of necessity as a relationship to the divine will which accepts the act of supernatural love and not the act of natural love. And this struck me as, first of all, a bizarre question, uh, quite a bizarre answer, and the discussion is, was very short, unbelievably dense, and I had a kind of almost visceral response to it. It made me feel um, remarkably happy and content when I read it. Uh, and then I thought, well, I definitely want to work on SCOTUS. And as you say, um, I, still, I still do work on SCOTUS a bit, um, but I have been working more recently on this Christological stuff. Uh, you're, there, there are lots of them in the pipeline, almost all nearly ready. Um, and I'm just at the moment working on the second edition of one I wrote in 2000 or published in 2002 on Christology from Aquinas to Scotus. And I think it's going to be quite different from the um, original one. But I've also got one. Um, um, your readers won't be able to see this, but I'm showing it. The Metaphysics of Christology from William of Ockham to Gabriel Beale. And I finished one from 1050 to 1250 as well. And I have more plans, which, <laughs> uh, but anyway, that's for another time. So yes, that's how I got into Scotus. And well, of course, the first thing I worked on with Scotus is Christology. And so in a way, my, my whole life has taken one or other of those two paths with a few diversions on the way. Uh, and it still is, really. That's awesome. So that was how I got into Scotus. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think your original 2002, that volume on the metaphysics of the incarnation, that's one of the few books I've read multiple times because uh, I just found it such a valuable resource. So the fact oh, well, that you're going to you. come out with a new one, I'm very excited to read it again. The new one's going to be quite different, actually, because uh, I've learned a lot about Christology in the interim, <clears throat> both before and after. And I've developed some, I think, more precise or more fine-grained analytical tools Awesome. Uh, so I will come to some different conclusions. Excellent. Well, so you have to buy the book again. I will definitely buy it again and read it again. And I will have to see where the areas that maybe I need to change my own position because I've been relying on, on maybe dated research or something. So <laughs> this will be fun. Now, I, I want to ask about just some basic terms that seem to get thrown around, particularly in, I think, contemporary Reformed context, Things like univocity, voluntarism, and nominalism—they um, seem to be like the the three-headed horsemen of like any bad. The if if you're a bad theologian, then you have to have one of these three things in your toolkit. So maybe when we use those terms, what exactly do they mean? Because I think a lot of times people who use them don't even know what they're saying. Okay, so that's that's quite a large question, um, and you're right. There's a lot of misunderstanding about it or about those issues, the first thing to keep in mind is they're all completely independent of each other. Okay, so you could be, for example, a nominalist without being a voluntarist. You could accept a university of being without being a nominalist or the university of a university of religious language. Um, so I'll treat them separately. If you if ever you see them bunched together as a group that somehow each involves the other, you can be sure that somebody doesn't know exactly what they mean. Um, so, let's start with univocity. Um, so, one thing 
to keep in mind about university is it's purely a theory and a philosophy of language. That was how it was designed, that was how it was intended. Um, as far as I know, it doesn't have any um, ontological consequences whatsoever, unless you think that the structure of language very closely reflects the structure of reality. Um, but nobody in their right minds thinks that. Um, so the thought is that um, when I use, for some terms, not for all terms, but when I use some terms of different kinds of thing, let's say um, animal of dogs and cats, uh, I mean exactly the same thing in the two different cases, and that what distinguishes God, dogs and cats is not their animality, but other features. So we hold animality fixed. Um, now, the ex this example is quite instructive because as I see things, um, there's no feature in the world that is being an animal, right? An animal is just a big complex disjunctive property, either being a dog or being a cat or whatever for all the animals that there are. Um, but I'm using animal there univocally, right? I'm using it to mean exactly the same thing. Now that, that might be completely the wrong theory about animality. Scotus, for example, thought that genus terms um, weren't univocal, but I'm just, he had a different theory about um, different semantics for genus terms from the one I was just proposing right then. Um, so, I mean, that, that doesn't seem to me too controversial. It gets controversial from a theological point of view um, if you say the same thing about words you use of creatures and of God. So, for example, take the word wise. Um, Scotus would posit that there is some sense of the word wise in which it's functioning in a way analogous to uh, the semantics I just sketched for genus terms, although it wouldn't actually count as a genus for technical reasons to do with um, Aristotelian semantics, which we don't need to worry about. Now, why would you adopt that view? Scotus adopts it because he thinks it's necessary um, in order for theology to count as a science. And what the medieval theologians mean when they say theology is a science is that it's possible to reason deductively from some features or from some theological claims to other theological claims. And Scotus's thought was that if the words aren't univocal, then you won't know whether your inferences go through or not, right? which would be catastrophic if you're a if you're a theologian. Um, uh, I, now, is he, is he right about that? Um, it was There's a wonderful book published by the Catholic University of America Press by someone called Dominic de Torre. Uh, it's called Analogy After Aquinas. And his point is, and I think he's exactly right, that Thomas immediately recognized that this was a, a devastating criticism of Aquinas's view it was intended as a criticism of Henry, but it works perfectly well against Aquinas, if it works at all. Um, and it was only really, then the Thomists only really found a solution to this when they got to Cardinal Cajetan, who has the analogy of proportionality, and so that as this is to this, that is to that. Um, so that solves the problem, right? So now we could have um, we could have a way of grounding our theological inferences 
in a way like a kind of modeling system, right? You can make, you can construct a model, and if, as long as the model structurally reflects well enough the thing it's supposed to model, you can make inferences from features of the model to features of the thing you're trying to explain, and that's the analogy of proportionality. Uh, so that would be a solution to Scotus's objection, whether or not what the right answer about theological methodology is, um, I don't know, and I don't have a strong view on the matter. Now, why is university thought to be harmful? It's thought to be harmful because it's, people mistakenly believe that it has some metaphysical commitments to it. Uh, but it's hard to see what those would be unless you thought that language really had to track reality very closely. Um, all you need is an appropriate semantics that will get your propositions to be true. It doesn't mean that in point of fact, God's, you know, there's some feature, I don't know, being or wisdom, um, and that that feature is really shared in some sense by God and creatures, like a universal. Um, you don't, you, it doesn't commit you to that. I mean, you could think that. You would probably be mistaken if you did, but you could do. Um, be interesting to see a theory about it. Um, but that's certainly not the view that's um, defended by Scotus. So there's one thing. Right. Um, I suppose carrying on with university a bit longer, un sorry, with university a bit longer, um, people now worry that you can't have participation if you have university. But then again, it's not clear why you, you should actually think that, um, because theories about participation are metaphysical theories, and they're independent of theories in semantics and the philosophy of language, which is what university is. Um, yeah, so what your second one was, let's do nominalism next. So, here's one clue that university and nominalism are completely independent of each other. Uh, and the clue is that both Scotus and Occam accept university of the university of religious language or certain predicates at any rate um, whereas Scotus is a realist and Occam is a nominalist so what's at stake there it really goes back to um, ways of interpreting Aristotle um, because no one knows and I don't think Aristotle himself knew or had a theory about this whether Aristotle thinks that, and this is the question, there are real universals corresponding to certain predicates or not. Now, not all predicates are going to have universals, that is to say shared substances, are going to correspond. Not all predicates will correspond to those. I gave you an example of one which didn't just now, which is animal. Re let's start with realism, which is the, is the opposite of nominalism. Realism is the view that there are certain shared universals. For example, um, humanity is somehow really shared by the three of us and by others we hope too. Um, why would you posit that? You would posit that because it seems that we are similar in certain salient respects and we want to be able to pick out as it were the core features that ground that similarity so we're more similar to each other than we are to cats. One, if you, one um, so one way of grounding that is to say, oh, well, if things are similar, they, they share something in common, right? And as soon as you said that, they share something in common, if you mean it seriously, you're committed to a shared universal or common nature, call it humanity. 
Um, and the opposing view is nominalism would have to say, no, no, that the, the similarity that we have to each other, that we don't have to cats, is just primitive. Okay, there's nothing other than the three particulars, the three of us, that explains that fact. Um, and so that's what's fundamentally at stake. Historically, it gets very complicated because, as I said, it's got to do with the interpretation of Aristotle, who is unclear on the matter. But Alexander of Aphrodisias in the third century uh, tried to present a realist reading of Aristotle so that Aristotle does accept real universals. Um, and this was taken up by Avicenna in the um, 11th century, who was, you know, probably the greatest philosopher, certainly the greatest philosopher of the Islamic world. Um, I was going to make much more extravagant claims than a but, uh, uh, So in Avicenna, you get this famous little aphorism, right? Hoarseness is just hoarseness, right? And so he's trying to explain what a universal is, and he says, you know, it's just what it is to be a horse, in the case of horses. Um, and it comes to, it's a sort of theoretical entity, that, but it, 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 that very thing, hoarseness, comes to exist in different ways, in particular horses and in the mind. So there you've got a load of particular horses, you've got a load of concepts, your concept of a horse, my concept of a horse, assume they're the same for the sake of argument, we've both got the right concept. And all of those things are in some um, unspecified sense identical with or related to the sort of um, the item just that's required in the theory which is hoarseness um, and that's the thing which is explaining the resemblance and is explaining the fact that we can predicate the term horse of horses and is explaining the fact that we have um, I take it um, concepts of horse at least similar enough for us to be able to talk intelligibly to each other about horses. And a nominalist says there is no such item as the hoarseness that's just hoarseness. I mean, and you know, from the point of view of parsimony and intelligibility, it's very easy to be sympathetic to that because, you know, where is it? It lacks being, it lacks unity, according to Avicenna. Um, and according to Aquinas, um, and what kind of thing could there be that lacks unity and lacks being, right? It, it sounds daft. Um, and what I've just said is a summary, not only of Avicenna, but of a really wonderful summary of Avicenna produced by Thomas Aquinas in the On Being and Essence. Um, it depends, it's chapter two in the old edition, but people have divided the thing up differently now. Um, now, if we think about um, Scotus, Scotus accepts more or less that Avicennian view I've just sketched with one small change. He thinks that it must be the case that the common nature has some being of its own, and it must be the case that it has some unity of its own. Why the first claim? Because it's supposed to be doing some explanatory work, right? Why the second claim? Because um, anything which is has some kind of unity. So if we were to think about realists in the Middle Ages, we would say that Aquinas is um, 
um, um, a stronger realist, a less moderate realist than Aquinas or Avicenna are. Um, you find the same thing in Cajetan, I think. He, um, though there, there's a lot of controversy about how you should read Cajetan. Um, but he seems to move, to my mind, in a slightly scotist direction. Um, and it looks to me that if you wanted to accept that view, you ought to move in the slightly scotist direction, um, precisely for the reasons I've just given, namely that the thing's supposed to be doing some explanatory work, whereas in Aquinas and Avicenna, and for that matter, Alexander of Aphrodisias, it's in some kind of ontological no-man's land, right? Neither is nor isn't. And this doesn't sound very good. Um, Occam, I think, just thought we could do without it. And it's really weird, so why not just get rid of it? Has some very interesting consequences. If you think about how common natures appeared in Avicenna, um, right, so Avicenna fam famously um, thinks that the theory of common natures would entail that you have to have some kind of distinction between common nature or essence on the one hand and existence or the on the other. If you think about it very crudely, you could think of existence getting plugged in to the common nature, and that gets you a horse, let's say, right? So you plug existence into hoarseness, and lo and behold, bingo, there's a horse. Um, so, and Scotus agrees with that, because, you know, there's, there's real existence, and that's, as it were, what gets you real horses. Um, Occam just says, no, this is all nonsense, right? But if, if we think it's all nonsense, we've abandoned the distinction between essence and existence. But, well, does that matter? Well, you might say from a theological point of view it does, if you think God's just pure existence. Well, if you're Occam, you just think there's no distinction between essence and existence. There are just particular essences. Um, and you would distinguish God from creatures in some completely different way. And there are plenty of ways you could do, you don't, you know, you could, God could still be pure actuality, you just need a different way of spelling it out. Or God could be utterly unconditioned or wholly independent. Um, and those would be sufficient ways of distinguishing God from creatures. Um, I don't think it makes any other theological difference, nominalism. Um, and you might think that's a small price worth paying to get rid of a lot of very difficult metaphysical stuff. Okay, and so the last one is voluntarism. So this term gets used in various different senses, and here are two of them. First of all, um, it gets attached to the belief that um, there is free will in what we nowadays call a contra-causal sense. That is to say, that there's some sense in which it's just up to me, at least in some circumstances, what I decide to do, and that I could do this or that, holding everything else in the world fixed. Um, that would be one sense of the word voluntarism. Um, and it would contrast with what we nowadays call compatibilism, the view that free will and determinism are compatible. Um, so that, um, what constitutes an action as free is just that it wasn't coerced. That's one sense of the word voluntarism. Now, it's an interesting question. Which That's a philosophical question, as far as I can see, which of those two views is true. Scotus, of course, famously thought that the contracausal sense was true. Um, and he gets, he gets an argument, a phenomenological argument, really, from P. 
Peter Alivi, a well-known Franciscan predecessor of his highly able person. Um, and the thought is, it seems to us that you know, we really can choose between different options in exactly the same circumstances. Um, and other things being equal, you should assume that things are as they seem to be, unless there's a reason, unless you find a reason for um, I'm thinking you are mistaken. So there's one sense of voluntarism. Another sense of voluntarism is, um, so that's to do with theory of action. Another, sen another sense of voluntarism is um, ethical, um, that some or all um, of um, our moral norms are a matter of divine will. Well, that's not quite strong enough because everyone thinks that some of them are. Um, right, so divine positive law would be God says, I don't know, go to church on Sunday, right? Um, that's, in, within, that's entirely a matter of divine will, right? Um, he could have said, go to church on Monday or Saturday. Perhaps he did say go to church on Saturday, as far as I know, or do whatever worshipping you're supposed to be doing. Um, but it's going to be that some norms that look as though they're not just arbitrary like that, right? That, um, I don't know, you shouldn't steal. Right, that some of those norms are in fact a matter of divine will um, and nothing else. Um, Occam certainly thought that was the case. There's nothing to do with nominalism, right? You notice I sketched the position out and I didn't mention nominalism or university or any of those things. It's a completely different issue. Um, it's not clear to me what Scotus thought about um, I've changed my mind on this so many times it's embarrassing. I'm not sure I know what Scotus thought about it, so I'm not going to say. Um, now, does that make a difference? Um, it certainly makes a difference in moral theology, and I don't think I got a strong view, um, a strong view on the matter. The former sense of voluntarism, um, that our wills are contracausally free um, that is hard to make compatible with certain kinds of predestination, not all of them, and we could talk some more about that later on. Um, Scotus, for example, who had a strongly Augustinian view on the questions of predestination, also thought that our wills were contracausally free, uh, and he never managed to sort that um, antinomy out. Um, Alevi just said, um, Alevi just had to, uh, was more consistent than Scotus on this, so he just abandoned strong theories of predestination. Um, and obviously you'll remember in the Reformation, both between uh, Luther and Erasmus, and between uh, Calvin and Pigius, um, you have very similar debates about freedom cropping up. And um, yes, yeah, so I'll, I'll stop there. Those are your three terms. So what are the general narratives that exist about um, those particular concepts, univocity, um, voluntarism, nominalism, and their reception or influence on the Protestant Reformation, um, whether Lutheran or Reformed? And how do you see um, these concepts uh, playing a role in early Protestant? theology. 
Okay, thank you. That's very interesting. I mean, I think the first thing to keep in mind is that they clearly did, right? Um, something which people are beginning to be more aware of um, in the last few years, and there are a few research groups working on this as well, is just how much continuity there was between medieval theology and um, Reformation theology very broadly. So take, take Luther. Luther is just really um, a very imaginative scholastic theologian. Um, there are lots of things one could say about this. The first is that he himself tells us uh, that he follows Occam on the, the question of universal. So he's a nominalist and he's absolutely upfront about that. His word for it is terminist, but there's some well-known uh, passages and everything he says about, well, I would, the topic I was working on him was the Christological semantics and everything or nearly everything he says is just straight out of Occam or some other part of the medieval tradition. Um, <clears throat> Another, so there's one obvious way. Um, another way in which, another Reformation debate that fits very neatly into medieval context, uh, debates about the nature of justification and sanctification. Um, so for example, um, it's typical in Protestant theology to make a a strong distinction between justification and sanctification and this goes back to Luther and his reading of Romans and Galatians I take it um, <clears throat> and the thought is that justification is well putting it very crudely Luther has this notion of extrinsic imputation of, of Christ's righteousness which is what justification would be and then sanctification would be construed in a normal medieval way in terms of created habits of grace, you certainly find that in uh, universally, as far as I know, in both Lutheran and, and Reformed theologians later on. For the medievals, as it were, step one of that process isn't there. Right? So it's just you get some infused created habits of grace and they sanctify you as well as justify you. So what Luther has done, he's added an extra stage in. Um, and he's done this on the basis of, um, it's, his motivations are scriptural, I think. Um, now, if we think about late medieval views on justification, um, most medieval theologians after Scotus um, thought that God could justify you without giving you sanctifying grace. Um, and the technical term for this is acceptation, right? So God could accept you um, irrespective of the presence of sanctifying grace. And this, oddly enough, is exactly the issue in Scotus's Quadlibet 17, because I said right at the beginning of our discussion that Scotus's position was that acts of natural and supernatural love fundamentally differ merely in virtue of a different relationship they have to the divine will. And a relationship to an extrinsic will can't change the species of an act. Right, and so what Scotus has got in mind is that God could accept you and your acts without giving you sanctifying grace. Um, and Calvin has a very, very interesting comment on this in the Institutes. He says, you know, lots of medieval theologians have a theory of, oh, no, I'm not sure he said lots. He says there is a medieval theory of, uh, of divine acceptation. Um, and he's, he suggests that that corresponds to what he calls 
justification. Then he wonders, he has a very intelligent thought about it. If justification is divine acceptation, which Scotus considered possible but counterfactual, right, because he thought it in fact comprised the habit of grace, um, if that's the case, what sense would it make to think that it could be um, something that you could lose again? Right? If God's accepted you, he's accepted you, right? is the thought. And so he thought, Calvin thought the logic of the Scotist position there would in fact support his view, Calvin's view, uh, that you know you don't float around in and out of justification. And if it's a matter of divine will, then that would make little sense. And so he seems to be right about that. Uh, if you were going to adopt a divine acceptation view, um, well, which Scotus does, but he seems to think that divine acceptation, as a matter of fact, tracks the presence or absence of sanctifying grace. And Calvin says that's not a, that's a, there's some tension in that position. I think Calvin's right about that. Um, on questions about universals, um, I don't know. After Luther, I'd need to look that up. Um, what people thought, I think. Um, so what happens in the 16th century is quite interesting in relation to the general reception of Aquinas. Um, you know, Aquinas hasn't really been a big figure around the place. He becomes a big figure around the place really after Cajetan, who sort of does this great, you know, um, he sort of mops up all the messes and tidies it up and makes it suitable as, you know, a fighting tool against Scotists. Um, and that gets adopted amongst Protestants as well. So I'm, I suspect, I don't know, um, one would find, um, for example, analogy rather than university as a preferred theory about religious language um, amongst the Protestants, Part, just be, partly because of this repristination of Aquinas and the realization that, in fact, you could develop an, um, a good theory about theological argumentation without appealing to university. Um, and, um, yeah, voluntarism. Again, I don't know enough about um, Reformed or Lutheran theories about, so on ethical voluntarism, I don't know enough about Reformed or Lutheran theories um, about the basis of the moral law. Um, that'd be worth finding out about. Somebody could do it. Um, on the question of the contracausal free will and action theory, so here I think um, the Council of Trent, so Trent makes explicit something which isn't made explicit among, by Augustinians in the Middle Ages, which is that grace is resistible, right? And that becomes a crucial dividing point between, um, or a crucial dividing point between Protestants and Catholics, right? Is grace resistible or not? You would want, I mean, I would say, obviously, yes, right? And if it's resistible, then suddenly... All sorts of theories about um, um, God's will become compatible with contracausal free will. Um, you, you, you could find something to say about predestination without too much difficulty, I would think. Um, I haven't thought that one through. Um, now, in the Middle Ages, most of the theologians were pretty hardcore Augustinians. Right? So Aquinas, Scotus. Um, things do change in the early 14th century. Um, 
partly because of um, thinking about counterfactual possibilities, and partly, you know, there was a wonderful Dominican theologian called Robert Holcott, and Holcott was a generous and kindly soul, as well as a very great logician, and he worried about the, sal the salvific status of people who never heard of Christ. So he says, aha, I know, uh, God will give grace just to people who do the best they can in this circumstance, right? It's a very humane kind of thought. Um, and so that then was really the origin of this, um, the worry that some of the reformers had about works, okay? Um, I don't know a medieval theologian who, as it were, combines the two views in a way that then Trent does by making grace resistible. Um, yeah, that's it for... <laughs> yeah, that's helpful. So I, I, I did want to follow up a little bit. You, early on when you were sketching out university, you were explaining how it's a semantic theory and not sort of like giving you metaphysical or ontological commitments. Why is it that so many theologians, even in the reform period and contemporary, seem to think that university requires metaphysical commitments to it? So, for example, I was reading an essay by Richard Muller called Not Scotus. And based upon my reading, now I could be wrong, I'm not as smart as Richard, but he seems to assume that the theory of university is a metaphysical theory and not a semantic theory. And so that seems to color the whole analysis of what the Reformed think. And so I'm wondering, like, why is that the case? Is this just, is it just confusing? Or, or is there a reason to think that somehow the semantics bleed into the ontology? Um, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, people clearly have some intuition that the semantics must lead into the um, ontology. Um, I suspect that's because they don't, they haven't thought enough about um, different semantic theories. Um, why? So that might explain why um, modern people think that way. Um, I don't know why. Um, let's say a Lutheran theologian or a Reformed theologian might find analogy preferable. Um, I mean, I I could think of reasons why you might. But they'd be semantic reasons, not theological reasons. I've not looked into that, so I don't know what their actual reasons are. I think, I mean, that's a nice article by Muller. Um, he just, he points out, I think, quite convincingly that um, they all like analogy, but he doesn't tell you why. So I'd want to know why they like it. And then we could diagnose, if there's a problem to diagnose, we could diagnose it. Um, I think, um, by and large, um, when people insist that, I mean, there is a, there is a worry, right, that, suppose you're Jean-Luc Marion, right, um, you don't want your, your conceptualities to be, as it were, to overlap, right, you need one conceptuality for the divine, one conceptuality for the created, um, and you just bite the bullet, right, and make theological reasoning almost more or less impossible, right? And that's a good thing from that perspective. Um, so there it would be a worry that you, know, that you can't even, you can't even um, as it were, you could have no common conceptualities between the two. Um, so, I mean, that might be right, but it does have the consequence that, that Scotus pointed out, which is that then you're... you're you, 
it's hard to know how you would actually go about theological reasoning. Now, I, I'm also curious, I know you've done work, a little bit of work on some of the more modern receptions of SCOTUS, like John Milbank's thesis. And it seems that it was roundly told, no, this is a non-starter. And yet I'm seeing it pop up in sort of like more popular evangelical stuff. And I'm so I, I was wondering if you could sketch a little bit of what's problematic with thinking that SCOTUS is somehow the the common source of all that's bad with modernity. Where does that go wrong? I, I mean, I'm still not clear why Milbank wants to pick out SCOTUS as the bad guy, but <laughs> I don't know if you know that or not. I think there's a fundamental worry that um, somehow, if you accept you can you can reason and talk about God in these kinds of ways, you're sort of demystifying things. I think that's the fundamental motivation. I may be wrong, you'd have to ask John and see what he said. Um, <clears throat> and that, I mean, there's a complicated story about, which goes to the conceptuality thing I was just talking about. There is a complicated story that somehow once you include God in metaphysics, you've got a unified, as it were, conceptual system. And people aren't all that happy with that. For a theological reason, the theological reason would be that, you know, um, if you thought there was just one big conceptual scheme that included God and creatures, you would just have gone wrong from the get-go, from the outset. Um, so, I mean, one could think about Scotus, and you contrast him with Aquinas in a very um, helpful way, I think. Right? I think Scotus thought that... Um, Theoretical generality was a methodological desideratum, right? It was something you should be aiming for. If you could come up with one conceptual scheme that would cover everything, that was a good thing, right? So he's a, like an analytic philosopher, and I can say that, and I'm not helping the pro-scotus cause, I know. Um, and I think Aquinas would have thought that, that, that if you're talking about the relationship between God and creatures, that's not the way you want to go, right? You want somehow things to be radically different on the God side. Now it's an interesting question, um, why? And Scotus is just going to say, well, you know, you've just got to be clear about your semantics here. Um, but it's true that he does, um, he thinks, for example, in order to make sense of the Trinity, you've got to posit some kind of real distinction in God. Um, I suspect he's probably right about that, because it's very hard to understand how the one utterly simple divine essence could be the truth maker for all sorts of complex Trinitarian claims. Um, but Aquinas would really want to resist that. Right? That's why he, he says this is a distinction according to reason only. Right. Um, so what he's saying is that that's just a complicated way of saying, yes, the one simple divine essence can ground all of these predications. Um, I don't know what to say about that. It seems, that seems to me a mistake. And so to that extent, so Scotus, when he's talking about distinctions in God, say between the divine attributes, says this oughtn't to be controversial because you've already got distinctions between the divine essence and the divine personal properties. If you didn't, um, you wouldn't be able to distinguish the persons of the Trinity from each other. So if you've already got the distinction there, and if you think it makes good sense elsewhere, you can have it elsewhere as well. So distinction between divine wisdom and divine goodness. 
It does fit in very nicely with the um, university theory of religious language. So you could, you could see that coming as a package, but it doesn't have to. Occam, for example, had university without any of those distinctions. And he, I think, was a bit like some of the later Thomists. He just thought, um, um, you've got a license to predicate, right? You've got a license to predicate contradictions of one and the same thing in the divine case. I think that's Occam's view. Um, it's not a very, it's a very, he must have, it must have disturbed him immensely. Um, you find it in some later Thomists as well, I think. Um, probably not as intelligent as Occam, so it probably didn't disturb them as much, but who knows? Yeah, that's really helpful. Thanks. Thanks for that, Richard. So what areas of theology and metaphysics are shared by the reformers and the medieval scholastics? So, um, and if you want to zero in on Christology in particular, um, that would be great. Uh, but I'm just curious about um, yeah. Perhaps not influences per se, but um, were were the Protestants kind of uniformly Thomist or uniformly Scotist, or is there is it more eclectic? It's much more eclectic than that, I think. Um, what I found in Christology um, was that they all. Well, no, let me start again. What I found in Christology was that all of the Reformed theologians adopted a view you find in Scotus. But I don't think they did it because it was there. I think they did it because that's just the view that everybody in the late Middle Ages had. Um, and you, it, it, it sort of builds up through the 13th century. Um, and it's the view that you need to think of Christ's human nature as depending on the divine person in something like the way an accident depends on a substance, but without any of the actualization, passive potency stuff. Right, so it's just a certain kind of dependence relation. Um, and, you know, that's an appealing thought because accidental dependence grounds predications. Right? So, if taking a, my, um, I don't know, um, let's say Socrates' wisdom, that's a better one. Socrates' wisdom, right? The wisdom of Socrates grounds the predication Socrates is wise. So it looks like you've got the right kind of relation to do um, the communicatio idiomatum right? and all that kind of stuff. And that, you know, that just seems like a perfectly intuitive, seems like a good view. You first of all find it, as far as I know, in um, William of Auxerre in the early 13th century, gets developed by Bonaventure, then Godfrey of Fontaine, Scotus and Godfrey of Fontaine sort of codifies it, the view. And then, you know, you find it in Scotus, Herveus Natalis, the Dominican minister general in the 1320s. Um, and then it just becomes the view of almost everyone and it stays being the view of almost everyone um, until you get the revival of Aquinas, because this is not at all Aquinas's view. So the Lutherans... So what happens then after Cajetan in Catholic circles is that Aquinas' view comes back on the scene and then people split into two. The Jesuits and the Franciscans follow Scotus, or the, the, the standard medieval view. Um, um, Dominicans follow some version of Aquinas' view mediated through Cajetan. In Protestant circles, things are more complicated because of the Lutherans. 
Right, so the reform declare enough, they just go with the old, the, 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 um, the opinio communis, right, the general medieval view, uh, which I just sketched out. Luther accepts that. Luther is a nominalist, so he accepts it with sort of alchemist semantics to go along with it. Um, but then the, the Lutherans do a weird thing, which is they adopt a view from Augustine. So this happens with Johannes um, um, Brentz in the 1520s. And the view they adopt from Augustine is the view that there is a human substance and this substance became, becomes the same person as a divine person while remaining a distinct substance. So in Chalcedon you get the absolute identity of the word and the man because they're just word God manages two different ways of naming the same item the divine person and that's the general medieval view the Lutherans you get some kind of relativized identity which you can find in Augustine and in certain minority voices through the Middle Ages as well um, it's very hard to make this view compatible with Chalcedon um, so you need to sketch out some pretty uh, complex semantics and you can solve the problem, but I mean, it's just a mistake. There's no need to try to solve it. So they adopt the old assumed man or homo assumptus view from Augustine. They then mistake Luther's view for that view, uh, which it's not. But it's easy to see how they got there because of stuff Luther says about um, the omnipresence of the human nature. Right. So it looks like the man he was the man to refer to the nature. Um, and now we've got exactly, you know, the later Lutheran view. Um, and so they have, the Lutherans then have a problem. Well, what's the nature of the tie? What is it that makes the, the, the man and the word, what ties them together such that they can be the same person? And what they all did was they borrowed stuff from Thomas Aquinas and Cajetan and that tradition, um, which speaks about the communication of the divine personal property or personal essay, personal existence, to the assumed nature. And that's a sensible thing for them to do because that view, which you find in Aquinas, in fact was developed by 12th century homo assumptus theologians. What makes, what makes the human substance the same person as the divine person? Oh, I know, it's got the divine person's personal property. That's what makes it the same person. Um, and so Aquinas adopts that old, 12th century view in the context of a Chalcedonian Christology. The Lutherans then adopted, as far as I know, from Aquinas in the context of the kind of homo assumptus theology that it was first used to try to um, explain or defend. So there's a very complicated little history there. Um, and it's, it's taken quite a lot of unpacking. And I didn't know it. I didn't know the origin of Aquinas's view on Christology until I started looking at some of the late Victorine theologians in the 12th century, and there you find that view, um, and it makes its way in certain circumstances, in certain circles to the 13th century. But then people tend to abandon it um, because it's very, first of all, it doesn't really help explain unity in the context of a more Chalcedonian Christology. And also, it seems um, weird to think that something created could have as a feature of its divine personal property. Right, so Suarez uh, describes his view as absolutely unintelligible, for example. So that's, that, yeah, that's one thing I've been discovering through this Christological work I've been doing.
as you've been talking, I'm wondering, like, how much of the confusion over whether the Protestant reformers are Thomist or Scotist or something else is because the reformers themselves aren't, like, citing in a modern way their references to where you can clearly see who they're depending on. And maybe is it they're, they just don't have access to it, so they're sketching what they think is a Thomist view, but is actually somebody else's view. And so then it gets complicated and confused over time. Like, how much of it is just there's misunderstanding of the primary sources, and so that's generating false narratives about who is who and who's the good guy, who's the bad guy? Yeah, so I think you've, put, you've sort of put it the wrong way around, right? It's not that people want to be Thomist, Right, but then we're confused about what it was. They knew perfectly well what it was. They knew perfectly well. Right, there are tons of copies of Aquinas's Summa. There are tons of copies of Scotus's um, um, Ordinatio on the sentences. Right, in old editions, they know what the stuff is. There are tons of copies of Bonaventure. They know perfectly well what the stuff is. But unlike modern people, they don't. And unlike the Catholics, really, they weren't motivated by party lines amongst their Catholic theologians. Right, that party lines becomes a thing, really, in the in in among, in Catholic circles in the sort of late fifteenth century, I think, um, and then it stayed a thing amongst the Catholic theologians. But there was no reason for um, Protestants to adopt party lines. They didn't come into the thing with the assumption that oh yeah, Aquinas is the man. We're just a bit stupid in understanding him. Right? They didn't have a man like that even where the Catholics were beginning to. But I mean, the, um, even then, you know, the Jesuits um, don't have, they're, they're, they're all closer to Scotus now, to Aquinas, but they don't really, they're not, they're not party-line people, right? They can pick and choose quite happily. Um, and I think the Reformed uh, theologians are a bit like that, right? They can be eclectic, you just, you know, because surely it's more, it's more important to be right than it is to be following one person. Right? That just seems to be completely um, insane. Yeah, no, that's right. So then when we read them today, I guess I'm wondering, are theologians who are reading them today, they're attributing, this is a Scotist view. And the reason they're attributing that is because of just something that's sort of like in the theological era. They don't have, they haven't read Scotus. They don't know what Scotus actually says. And so that sort of like poisons the water a little bit. Well, <laughs> um, yes. I, I mean, I can't comment on people's reading, but when one reads things written by people in certain theological circles today, it's pretty tough to suppose they had read at least some of the sources they're talking about. Yeah. Okay. Joel, did you have any questions you wanted to ask? Yeah, so this is circling back a little bit to the discussion of voluntarism. Um, so one of the ways that the term gets used that I've encountered um, is um, if you're a voluntarist and what's, uh, if you're not an intellectualist, that is, if the will has some sort of priority over the intellect, um, and so that use of the term voluntarism match it, maps on, as I understand it, to earlier debates in the medieval era about the relative you know, weight of acts of the intellect, acts of the will, and which sort of has a um, sort of priority of some sort. And mapping out exactly um, how, what that priority is, is 
difficult across different figures. Um, but I'm curious, um, on, on, is that a kind of good use of the term voluntarism or is it in those discussions, um, does that category actually blur more than it helps or? I mean, they're, they're all difficult words because people don't always mean exactly the same things by them. So voluntarist intellectualist. Um, that's one problem. They're also modern words. They're not, uh, they're not as it were, one words you'd find in the Middle Ages. Um, but the way you sketch it, you know, seems sort of right. Um, and the question is, the question is the extent to which the will could, in some sense, not overrule, but the, the sense in which there's something that's just left up to the will, right? So if you're an intellectualist, it's very hard to avoid some kind of intellectual determinism, right? So the intellect determines what the will wills, right? Um, whatever we say about intellectualism, a voluntarist would disagree with that because they would say that in at least some circumstances, the will can determine what happens. So the intellect, I mean, nobody thinks you could will something without knowing it, right? What would that be? Uh, so in that sense, the intellect's going to have to be prior. But you might think, well, you know, should I have, um, I don't know, oysters or sea urchin, right? Well, the intellect says, yeah, they're both pretty good, if you like that kind of thing. Um, and then it's just, it's just up to me by a pure act of will. Today I decide sea urchin. Um, and an intellectualist would probably not regard that as the right model for activity or human action, free human action. Um, but as I say, it's difficult then for an intellectualist to avoid some kind of um, determinism. Right, which most in the Middle Ages were motivated to attempt to avoid, right? Well, no, not really. Um, because remember, most of them are Augustinians, and so they don't have much trouble with the thought that, you know, free will is compatible with predestination in some way or another. And Scotus is the one, in a way, who's in trouble with that, mm. because he's both committed to contracausal free will and to a strong Augustinian account of predestination. And those things don't fit well together. Interesting. And, and until I think you, you, they sort of fit well together once you get the intuition that grace is resistible. Right. Right. And I mean, I haven't done any serious research on questions of the resistibility of grace in the Middle Ages. I'd be amazed if you could find it in, if you could make it consistent with what Aquinas has to say, for example. Because um, he has a very complex account of the way in which God moves the will, first of all, to accept grace and then um, to perform meritorious actions, like graced actions, are all called actual grace. Um, and that's the divine activity. Um, and I, I can't see any way of making that compatible with the resistibility of grace. But you should ask someone who knows more about Aquinas than I do about that, to see what they have to say. Because, you know, obviously in post-Tridentine circles, there's a great motivation for wanting Aquinas to be as consistent as can be with the decrees of Trent on this matter. Um, I'm not so worried about that because I think the history is more important. Cool. Well, thanks, Dr. Cross. This has been awesome. So as a reminder, if you want to 
follow along with what Dr. Cross is publishing. Do you have a Do you have a website or anything that people can go to? Not, not really. I've got I put some things on academia, okay. and I've got my usually I've got a sort of couple of years out of date CV stuck on the Notre Dame philosophy website. So at but, least you if know. you go look at that, you'll be able to find what was new two or three years ago. Yeah. Well, maybe <laughs> I, maybe I should make sure there's an up to date one there. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for doing this. I mean. I think of uh, your work as some of the foremost and most important in our current context for understanding the, the medieval history and the Lutheran history and Christology debates. I, I, I've learned so much from you. So I just want to say thank you for all that you're doing. And I'm excited to be continuing to read your research output. Um, your labors uh, serve quite a few people. So thank you. And for everybody who's been listening, thanks for listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.